Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2019. My name is Amato, and with me are... Tori. And Dom. Oh, I'm sorry. My name is Tori, and this is Dom. Oh, that sounds right. Yeah. Dom and Tori, can I ask you something? Yes. What's the first thing you remember? Uh, I mean... You mean today? uh, No, I mean like in your life. Well, like earlier today? Uh, no, no, before today. Hmm. There must have been something. <laughs> Nothing important, I guess. I guess not. Because today's the day when we discuss fan fiction that the literary canon <laughs> adores. Mm. Have we done anything quite like this before? Uh, we've done uh, Lupin. Yeah, the Lupin. That's a yeah, but yeah, that's, that's genre fiction, low art. <laughs> dare you. I, I think it's... I do think... <laughs> Lupin is crossed into, uh, moved across that sort of stage. However, we are really addressing something that is strictly a literary purview and furthermore is a stage play. That's true. It's the first script format fanfic we've read that is written to be performed on stage. Mm -hmm. We've read other script format fanfics. Semi-script uh, format, I think. Well, like, Exit Pursued by a Bear in such a script format. Oh, Muppet, yeah, yeah. Muppet Show Tribute to Anime would be very hard to stage. Yeah. Actually, Exit Pursued <laughs> by a Bear has what I would consider to be probably Samuel Beckett influence, but, you know, Tom Stoppard lives right up there in that. Oh, definitely. Um, that author, which... John Carp, does some other things that are in that same direction. We might at some point read their fanfic secondary characters, uh, which I thought about in s- occasionally, like, comp- it's not quite pure absurdist, but it does some things, I think, in this direction. Not that I know yes. what pure absurdist is. Well, I mean, Waiting for Godot is a good example, I think. Maybe not of purity and absurdism. <laughs> I don't, I, you have a good point. I don't know what that would look like. I don't think anybody knows what pure absurdist is. I think that's the point. <laughs> I think it might be this little bug that keeps trying to follow my finger right now. <laughs> Pretty absurd. I'm having a very golden stern moment. Oh, I just <laughs> fell off the table. Uh, which side did it land on? Um, heads. Oh. <laughs> of course. Just as likely as anything else, really. <laughs> Should come as no surprise. No. Mm. Now, I think our choice of this in our fan fiction review podcast would be controversial to some people if anyone was paying attention to us. So I'd like to talk <laughs> about that a little bit. That we don't exist if nobody pays attention to us? Uh, no. Mm. We could also discuss that, but that would be a more depressing conversation. It's a different play, I think. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I meant more like, how do you feel about this as a fanfic, like, to be a topic of our discussion? So how'd you come by this fanfic, Amato? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I saw a high school production of it last year on stage. Oh, cool. It's not a great production. It rarely is. I. <laughs> it's, it's a very challenging play to perform because there is... As many have mentioned, very little actual direction for the, the you know the actors. It's very much in the text what is occurring. I thought we were just talking about there being a lot of direction on how the actors should be playing it. There is. It just seems like most of it, uh, most of the play, rests heavily on the the chemistry between Roz and Gil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you would need a couple of real strong high school actors to pull that off. Yeah. And my point was more along the lines of, like, there is direction, but it's more along, like, the, that first line where it's, like, that's 
the tone for the character. What does it say? Um, he's nice enough to feel a little embarrassed taking money off his friend. Let that be his character note. Like, how is that a full character note, right? Like, it's <laughs> it's a lot of an interpretation that has to go in from the actor's side. Some scripts give you less. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. But I think this one requires more. So how does the script qualify as fanfic? Well, that's worth a discussion. When I was... Well, okay, it's based on Hamlet. Like, let's talk about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. These are characters from Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And this... I'm going to keep calling it a fanfic just, you know, for for my mental well-being. And so this fanfic is about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern before they walk on stage in Hamlet, in between when they're on stage in, on Hamlet, up through when they die, and I guess a little after or something. Well, they die off stage, so like... Yeah, they pretty much in Hamlet. after them when they right. die, yeah. But it's not... It's mostly about the weirdness of them being characters off stage who have a bit role in a story. Mm-hmm. Right? It's more about that than it is about Hamlet, right? Yeah. It is. And one thing that's interesting about this that I feel like makes it extra fan fiction-y is that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are often interpreted as sort of malicious towards Hamlet mm-hmm. in Hamlet. Like, they're on Claudius' side because they're trying to glean his motivation. And what Stopper does is not only focus on the relationship between the two of them rather than anything involving Hamlet himself but rather also focus on, like, how they are generally, like, more benevolent figures. They they have their own motivations. Their <laughs> lives do not revolve around Hamlet. But they do. Because, you know, a through line of the play is that more or less they are created wholesale to fill their role in the play and do not remember anything before and then get killed off, you know, cruelly by the playwright, yeah. William yet Shakespeare. Their, their personalities don't reflect the same way they do. <laughs> In the source material, which is why I think this is a good example of fan fiction, personally. And their own personality, they're like, hey, what's up with Hamlet? <laughs> yeah. What's their deal? <laughs> it's like... I like how they're constantly intimidated by Hamlet in this. It's like, you know, he's got some presence, and, like, they can barely bring themselves to, like, go talk to him at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's a totally valid reading of the source. It's just different from the common interpretation. And I love that about this play. Well, the main reason I chose this is because you two are theater nerds and we're excited to talk about it when i mentioned that we might do it sometime how are you and i a theater nerd um that's a good question i don't think i'm a theater nerd i think i've read a lot of plays you're You're a a literature nerd yeah yeah it's different you were in several high school productions yourself i was in every high school production i could be in except for one which one you miss i missed the importance of being earnest Mm. no i didn't because i was in the other show that they did at the same time (laughs) i missed something but i don't remember because i wasn't in it it's kind of like (laughs) i feel like for me it's kind of like how i played soccer all through my youth Mm -hmm. and have watched like one and a half soccer games total like it's like middle school or something yeah up up through middle school up until high school right i played all the way through there playing soccer is fun no interest in watching soccer so (laughs) i don't say i have no interest in watching plays it's just like i being in plays was fun but i don't i don't have any depth of knowledge or anything about Playery. That's the word, right? <laughs> Playism? <laughs> Playism. Play on. Uh, what about you two? Any background with this text in particular? Or theater in general? I've been doing a community theater in my adult life. Mm-hmm. I've been in a handful of productions. That's cool. Yeah. And we saw you in um, Jesus Christ Superstar. Right, where I played which a is cool. John the Lesser. <laughs> yes. Do they have lines? No. 
Are they one of the twelve? Yep. I'm I'm on the I'm third from the end. Does John the Great get lines? Yeah. Stupid John the Great. <laughs> that, that's just John. John's just John. Yeah, you have John and John the Lesser. Hmm. Yeah. Um you can take inspiration from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and give your character a deep inner life. And, you know... <laughs> offstage? Yeah, offstage. <laughs> Again, a reason why this is ripe through with the idea of fan fiction is characters given more background and perspective than they are given in the source. About this in particular, I'd seen a production at some point, but I didn't think about it enough. I was kind of glad to revisit it um, this last week so I can really kind of process what it is. As for the source material this fanfic is based off of, I've actually never read or seen Hamlet. Really? Yeah. Um, I don't like to read plays. <laughs> I, I mostly like to see, see plays. Excuse you. I, I, it happens. I, I'm a, I, I like my TV. <laughs> so like a lot of the Shakespeare stuff I'm familiar with was either um, assigned in school or I'd seen at some point, like down in Ashland in the, in the Shakespeare Festival. Hmm. I've never seen Hamlet. Hamlet's not never been one of the ones that's come up. I've seen um, Roman and Juliet. I've seen some of the histories, some of the comedies. I'm, I don't I'm think any of the tragedies besides R and J. R and J. I think I have read it and seen it. I've experienced Sleep No More, which was a theatrical thing in New York for a while, and I have read slash played the Hamlet based Choose Your Own Adventure book, To Be or Not to Be. I I have I am passively familiar with some of the monologues mm-hmm. here. I think everyone is, right? Of everyone course. in the world. Yeah. Everyone in the entire universe. Well, I have to say that, well, I don't consider Hamlet to be my favorite Shakespeare. I think that there have been enough productions and adaptations of it, especially, like, to me, the one with um, Kenneth Branagh and the one with David Tennant and Patrick Stewart in it. Those two both like were film versions that were incredible that it's gotten enough public attention that there have been amazing productions of it done. And that's why I've seen so many versions and read it so many times and, you know, studying as I did the English, Hmm. read it many times in classes. I'm a very, very big fan of many of the soliloquies. Again, still not my favorite in terms of plot. But, like, there are some very brilliant elements of wording in Hamlet. So I I definitely think it's a worthwhile play to see performed because people have done it so many times that there's been a a lot to build on in terms of making kind of this perfect adaptation. Mm -hmm. And I've added the 2009 Hamlet movie you've talked about to my watch list now. (laughs) You haven't seen the Rosie Crazy Gillingston movie either. So watch that too. Yeah, def- uh, yeah, after this, after the Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, there's a 1990, I don't know, 1990-something film that's very good. You said that the playwright was involved in that one. Yes. Um, Tom Stoppard was credited, I believe, as a producer. But Sounds great. anyway, yeah. he was quite involved, and that's really dope. So, Well, circling the same topic we've been, you know, going on here... After we assigned this as a reading, I just did a Google search and found a thread on some message board called The Straight Dope. I don't know what it is. What? Is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead basically Hamlet fanfiction? And so the posters go back and forth on it a little bit. Hmm. And, you know, theories are thrown out. People, some posters kind of want it to not be, so they have to find a way to, like, argue that. The idea that it can't be fanfiction because it is very good is quickly thrown out. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Someone proposes that 
Uh, it's not exactly fan fiction because fanfic is meant to continue, elaborate on, and hypothesize on the original author's stories and interested in, a, in the world the author created or continuation thereof, rather than using that world for their own visions. Whereas Stoppard's explore, Stoppard explores largely metafictional concerns in a way that this this random internet person does not see fan fiction usually do. Right. I, I'm, I have issues with the continuation part of that. No, it's total bullshit because yeah. <laughs> I've, I've seen fanfic that is very uninterested in continuing the original author's thing and is totally doing it for their own, like, yeah. Yeah. you know, textual purposes or whatever. I totally agree, but I think that's a very creative argument. <laughs> <laughs> their own textual gratification. People bring up you know, novels like Star Wars novels, and people are like, no, those are paid. That's not fan fiction. Mm-hmm. If you're paid for it, it's not fan fiction. QED. I almost agree, except that it's more like if you have the rights from the license holders, it is not fan fiction. Right. If you have the permission. If you're part of the, like, the official writer's room idea. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because and, then you're restricted in what you do with the universe. Right. Or, or at the very least, you had to say, like, hey, can I do this thing and yeah. get approval? Or, yeah, or you're under a f- control from the official source. <laughs> right. <laughs> that makes it more a part of the official source than anything more else. More collaboration, then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the arguments made that I found most interesting was that, oh, it's not fan fiction because it was not written to engage with a fan culture. Mm. And I was like, eh, that doesn't seem right. But then I remembered back when we read that Xena fanfic, Tropical Storm, mm-hmm. and we had a similar discussion. We were like, Tropical Storm is fan fiction because it is written to the fan culture, for the fan culture, with this purpose of engaging with the fan culture about this show, even though it has no Xena in it, really. I think what we came up with was that if it was written with the intent to be fan fiction, that was a lot of what makes a fan fiction. Yes. But then, upon thinking about it, I realized I cannot rule out Rosencrantz and Guildenstern on that basis yeah. because it is aimed at a fandom that is called theater nerds who like Shakespeare um, and plays at play festivals. Yes. This is true. And it's also aimed at, yeah, an audience who has read Hamlet. Yeah, and, for sure. Or seen Hamlet. And who is, because Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are minor characters, despite the fact that Stoppard goes out of his way, you know, he gotta, makes them his own, he gives them his own motivations so the play can stand alone even if you haven't engaged with Hamlet. I, I feel like it's you, it not... It could, but I feel like you would be even more lost. It, you, it, 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 as someone who does not as familiar with Hamlet, it comes off just as a weird, absurdist play. I guess that's what it is. Yeah, which so it, it's, it's kind of in tone for it to be radically different tone at, for no reason. Mm. <laughs> yes. So, as I was saying, even though <laughs> you, you can read it and take it out of that context, I think you're missing a big piece. And the fact that it relies heavily on both in like using the text of Hamlet in the play and placing the characters in and using the idea of being in a play of them being players in their own lives, etc. And having Hamlet as the source being such a big part of how that's recontextualized. I feel like you lose so much of the context if you don't have the knowledge of Hamlet that it kind of has to be fan fiction. And, and I guess where I'm going with that is that knowledge of the source has to be important to understanding. Is it important to Tropical Storm? Fiction. I think so, yeah. That, mm-hmm. wasn't, that, wasn't that our argument? I think it, that was, our argument was that it added to it, yes. So, I, like, significantly. I don't know if it's, like, necessary, though. Yeah, in the same respect, if you saw this play without knowing Hamlet, it would be an interesting play. But yeah. if you knew Hamlet, it would add so much to it. I think... Which was our argument about yeah. Tropical okay. Storm. That's yeah, fair, that's exactly. fair. 
which so so we're saying fanfic is written with the assumption that the people you're engaging with have also experienced the same medium that that's referring to. Mm-hmm. I suppose so. I I can't think of any counterexamples. No one writes fan fiction intending for someone who is not familiar with the source to read it, right? Right. Like, I'm going to write the Sailor Moon fanfic for someone who's never seen Sailor Moon. But don't you dare read, watch Sailor Moon. Right. Like, you better... <laughs> specifically for people who have no idea, like... In this case, fans are just people who have participated in this other um, culture or idea or something. Yeah, that's fair. You don't have to like Hamlet or Xena or X-Files to read these no. stories. You just have to, like, have that same shared basis. And they could theoretically stand on their own, but... That's not their point. Right. right. It's especially true with this because the cultural knowledge of Hamlet and Shakespeare's writing, et cetera, is so popular. Now, after we did all that work, mm-hmm. we are probably going to end up reading fanfics that do not fit that criteria. Really? Yeah, probably. Because, for example, uh, if we read The Once in Future King, which is based heavily on Lamorta to Arthur, mm-hmm. it's not really assuming that you've read Lamorta to Arthur. Then it's a really fanfiction. But it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I kind of a retelling. A like it's not. I but mean, is it a retelling of the Arthurian legend, or is it a retelling of? It's very heavily based on one particular work. I know, but you, you gotta you gotta step it up here, Amato. Give us a real definition of fan fiction. Let's solve all of the philosophical issues involved here. Okay. Well, okay. speaking of philosophical issues. <laughs> Let's actually set that aside. Yes. Because I just now realized I have no idea how to talk about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Mm-hmm. Mm. Any suggestions? Well, I never know how to talk about these stories, but you always do it anyways. Well, usually I say the order of events, but I don't know if that has a point here. I, I feel like it could. Um, my thoughts have primarily been that we should identify why this is fan fiction. Okay, I feel like I've identified my perspective... And I appreciate the addition of Tropical Storm because that helped to reinforce my point. <laughs> but one big thing is we could go through events. However, events in this play are limited to the events of Hamlet. That's not true. What but, about the beginning of the play when they're like in the woods? Except for the beginning of the play. Every interaction. And every interaction they have with the players? pretty much yes <laughs> that's yeah so what i was gonna say is because of that structure i feel like we could potentially isolate the parts that do not exist within the context of hamlet mm. and talk about those first that seems fair although for me the way they intersect with hamlet is pretty interesting okay yeah well that's also potential well, let's talk about some broad strokes it starts off with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are supposed to deliver a message, but they're having a lot of trouble remembering kind of who they are and like who, what they're doing or like pinning things down because they are these big characters in a play, but that's not the terms they're thinking of it in. Yeah. It's kind of all, it's like one of those nightmares where something is way harder to do than it should be. <laughs> and you, you know, know, you should be doing, you know, something, you know? Right. You know, you know, the something. For me, honestly, a lot of those dreams used to be stage anxiety dreams where it's like, I know I have a role. For some reason, I don't know what I'm going to say, but everybody expects that I do, and I'm still being forced on stage. I've had those dreams. (laughs) The funny thing is, they got less nightmare and more, like, comedic after I started actually (laughs) doing stage productions. I feel like when I used to have them, 
I wasn't even, like, super upset. I was just more, like, vaguely annoyed and unsettled. Yeah, I was upset that no one had, like, gotten in contact with me before. Right. Like, yeah, the director really fucked up. <laughs> but here, I'll try anyways. <laughs> uh, the point is, that's kind of the atmosphere. Um, and also, Rosencrantz is flipping a coin. Mm. Repeatedly. Yeah. You know, this has always been an interesting part of this play for me, because it's a huge point of argument at the beginning. Yeah. When they're flipping the coin, it always comes up heads. And do we feel fair in jumping to the conclusion, or sure. should we move beat by beat? I feel like in this play... Jump around. It's, I, I think we have to. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. We're supposed to establish in the beginning that something sort of supernatural is happening via the flipping of the coin. Because the coin is coming heads. up heads every 80, single time. 87 times, I don't remember specifically. It, around the number that. goes up. What's that phrase? Yes. Super sub... Sub uh, or supernatural. Sub on or supernatural. Sub yes. on or supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was just sub or supernatural. No, there's definitely three. Sub, sub <laughs> supernatural. Oh, really? Three's funnier. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's science. <laughs> oh, okay. Sub or no, it's sub or supernatural forces, which is two. There's three though. Oh. S- that that but, middle middle syllable is a, is un. I think. Sub oh. on supernatural. I've got a copy of the text here. We can resolve this, but it's two on one also. <laughs> wow, if that's the way it's going to be. I only phrase it like that, Amato, if I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, point being, yes, there's potentially supernatural forces at work. However, they, however the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern roll them out via a very flawed circular logic. You say Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but the, the thing here is that Rosencrantz is yeah. the one flipping the coin, and his attitude is basically like, huh, that's weird. Mm-hmm. And, and Guildenstern is the one getting yeah. like extremely freaked out about this, but kind of trying not to be, because coins do not continue to flip heads reliably every single time. I do like the personality they gave to both of them. They're one of those comedy duos where you have like the smart one and the funny one, right? Like the straight man and the uh, what do you would you call it? Uh, the well, like the the stupid one, quote unquote, and right. the uh, one that pretends they know. <laughs> right. I'm expecting yes. them to like one of them to hit each other over the head, Japanese style, like any time. Right, yeah, they take their hat off and whack them with it. Right, whack Rosencrantz. Yeah. <laughs> if I was directing this play, it would definitely just be Japanese Monsai style all the way through. It is funny. That'd be so be- surreal. <laughs> yeah, because they kind of have the element and they have the same like waiting for a Godot dynamic as well, the back and forth. But yeah, the, the coin flip is their establishing shot. And there's the idea that supernatural forces could be at work, but we've ruled them out through really flawed logic. However, at the very end, it's revealed that um, who does flip the coin? Is it Guildenstern who's flipping or Rosencrantz? It's Rosencrantz. No, it's Guildenstern who's flipping, right? Does it matter? Does it matter? <laughs> you know, it actually is very hard to keep track of either of them, despite, yeah. you know, reading and seeing over and over again because of the co- frequent confusion. But anyway, at the end, it's revealed that they, I think it's Guildenstern, who's always had another coin in his hand. That's very close to the end. So it was never... They're playing a, they're playing a different game where he hides a coin in his hand and makes the other one guess. Right, that's a yeah. different game. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. it's like, which, which hand was... is the coin in? And Rosencrantz oh, okay. Rosen was keeping a coin in both hands for that. Because he wanted Guildenstern to feel better. <laughs> I thought that was supposed to apply to the coin flipping notion as well. I don't think so. I thought it was supposed to extend, you know, the idea that there was always like an element of human control that was it's unknown by the players. You you raise a point here where like I feel like we talked about this in terms of magic realism back in high school English mm. class where like you could read this play and say there is nothing unsub or supernatural happening. Mm-hmm. And but 
but that doesn't feel quite right. But there's never just like there's never like a hand of God that like proves that there is, you know. My interpretation of that ending was always when he says there's a coin on the other hand, he says every time and it's repeated. My interpretation was that he meant extending across all games involving coins. That might have been an extreme extrapolation. I, no, that's a yeah. Reasonable I, I think lead. it was just. I, I think they're just talking about because they did it like three times in a row. So like every time they did the which which hands the coin technique, he was like every time. Yeah, it was all. Yeah, awesome. but it's it's really <laughs> emphasized the every time thing. So to me, I, I guess I always read that as because of the establishing shot with the coins and the ending with the coins that the every time extended to every possible coin thing that they did together. Hmm. However, well, there are I, multiple reads of the story, which is what makes it so good and interesting. It's what makes it literature. <laughs> literature. No, no. That's, that's not. What makes it literature is that it is somewhat old and well-regarded. It's mm. written out like the late 60s. 67. Uh, I call that retro. So, (laughs) after the coin stuff, um, we establish who are probably the other main characters in this play, right? Which are the tragedians. How do you pronounce it? Mm -hmm. Tragedians. I mean, they're actors. More or less. (laughs) Harsh. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's how they define themselves. Yeah. But, But they are just actors. In this first... Yeah, they're the actors. Yeah. In this first engagement with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the tension is mostly that they're basically on hard times and trying to prostitute themselves, and Guildenstern takes offense, and Rosencrantz is slow on um, the uptake. Yeah. I want to just pause for a second with that. It's um, So, obviously, this text written in 1967 uses yeah. the word prostitute fairly often. That is not currently acceptable word for sex workers. It's considered a slur. Okay. If you are a sex worker, you can apply that to yourself. But point being, I think we should say that they are performing sex work because, as they state, times are hard. Or times being what they are is the, the common phrase. Mm. What are they? They are what they are. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have the script memorized, do you? What I have you do been doing not. all week? I have read this, like, Seven, eight times and seen it. Like, well, we're going on stage five, in fifty minutes, so pop to I don't think I have the script memorizing capabilities that y'all have. So, that, I guess maybe we did develop script memorizing capabilities. It seems like you've memorized parts of this text in ways that I have not. Like I have the gist, but not the specific dialogue. Yeah, okay. I'd, I memorize with repetition, so yeah. I'd have to keep doing it over and over again. I only memorize the punchy bits reading through this. Hmm. And with the, um, I've been looking at the script because I didn't remember it. Looking at the coin bit, mm-hmm. it's um, you had coin in both, you had money in both hands. Yes, every time. Yes. What was the point of that? I wanted to make you happy. Yeah, right, and I always interpreted that as like the rule of the heads was like the making of the happy. Guildenstern right? was losing. Oh, but he was losing. You're right. Hmm. And so I think Rosencrantz was trying to make up for it here. Ah. Uh, that makes sense. No, that's probably a better interpretation. Well, all I want to say about the players here is that in this first time, there's nothing really weird and surreal about that. But later on, when they're you know performing <laughs> at the castle, 
like the line gets blurred more between like what's the stage and what's the performance and like who's the king and you know who's the person playing the king and who's Rosencrantz and who's like the actor playing Rosencrantz because it's Hamlet and the, you know the, these are the actors who are going to be performing the play that accuses Hamlet's stepfather right. the meta play uncle, the meta play right another fun thing is that a lot of the stage direction is it tells the actors to look into the audience when they're talking right it does um, which is very Shakespearean, by the by. You know, like uh, Rosalind looking out into the audience <laughs> in that last uh, thing in As You Like It, where it's like, I would kiss as many of you as had beards. And you're like, what's your gender? Um, anyway, point being, very Shakespearean, looking out into the audience and questioning that. So I think this is like super meta when you get down to it. <laughs> it's like I think we can all agree meta. that it is super meta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fairly meta. And after those incidents, they get more sucked into the plot of Hamlet. Like, they end up, you know, at the castle. And like in the play, they're theoretically supposed to be, you know, uh, talking to Hamlet because they're theoretically his childhood friends, even though they have no particular memory of that. Um, so they, they do scenes from Hamlet where they talk with Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, they do several scenes from Hamlet. And every time Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are in one of those scenes, they say the dialogue from Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's not weird and, you know, meta play at those moments in particular. One of the fun things is when they uh, go from act one to act two, there's a fade out, and they fade out in the middle of a Hamlet scene where it's just going on. Right. And they come back up in the middle of a Hamlet scene. And that happens more than once. And I like the way that's done because it, it puts the emphasis on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as characters rather than the play of Hamlet happening. It's like it's happening around them as atmosphere in ways. I really, I had all these ideas to, like, do weird meta play things with performance of this. Yeah. I would definitely want to produce Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead simultaneously. I thought about whether you could perform them simultaneously, but you cannot. But you could have the same actors in both plays playing the same roles and, like, do one one week and the other one the next week, and it would be something. hmm Yeah. I feel like that'd be very much within the author's intent. W- would the tickets be two for one? Yeah, they'd have to be. and you, But you'd have to have a different nights because you can't get people to sit through Hamlet and then another play. No. It's like how people just do not perform, like, no play. Uh, no plays can perform some. Kabuki plays were, like, historically kind of like all-day affairs, and they yeah. just don't do that anymore. It's like, we're going to do Act 1 from this play, and then this other dance, too. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, once they're in Hamlet... Let's see. Once they're in Hamlet, in ways it's more normal because there's a plot other than them just being lost and confused. But in another way, it's really weird because they are perpetually distressed by being disoriented when other people are not on stage with them. Disoriented about like where they are or what direction is what. And then or, they seem to lose their personality when the other person does come on stage. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Because at that uh, those times, they're playing their role in the story as opposed to kind of their role in this play. So following the plot of Hamlet, they end up in the end on a boat. They're supposed to be escorting Hamlet to England. And in the play originally, it's revealed that like the king had them killed, right? Like when he sent them off. They die off stage, don't they? They do, but at someone's orders. Yes. Um, I believe that it is in Hamlet. Well, the way that it's done in um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, I believe is the same way it's done in Hamlet, is that they're on the boat, and Hamlet, believing them to be malicious forces, 
Hamlet is sent to his death. He is an, the order that's sent with um, from Claudius to the English king is that Hamlet should be killed upon arrival, but he discovers the order and changes it to the fact that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern should die. And it, it's all... It, this is the way it's done Hamlet. It, it's all involved in Hamlet's, like, believe, belief that they are malicious actors in his life. I like thinking of the English king there, and it's just like, oh, some, you know, brother king in another country sent you a message, mm-hmm. and you open the message, and it's just like, hey, kill these messengers for me, would you? <laughs> yeah, well... Be, I mean... Right. Yeah, you'd be like, oh, okay... Sure. So, yeah, I, I think that's what happens. Um, the way it's done in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is the same, correct? Yeah, but we, I don't think we see Hamlet do that. I we don't know. do. We do? Okay. We see them read the... <laughs> they, they, we see them talking to, to each other, wondering what the English king is going to do. So they go through a pantomime of the whole thing, including giving the letter, and then, the, and then the, whoever's playing the king at the moment reads reads the letter at the time, so they see both states of the, le- of the letter saying that Hamlet should die and then they should die. <laughs> of course they do. Yeah. And, and it's a little convoluted because there's also the the attempted killing of the players that <laughs> right. involves a trick knife. Because one of the through lines of this play has been the idea put forth mostly by Guildenstern that death is inc- so frightening and incomprehensible that like the human mind has trouble grappling mm-hmm. with it and also that it, you know, it cannot be portrayed on stage. Yeah, and also, yeah, and these tragedians as actors, they say repeatedly that their trait is death, and they specialize in death, and check out that death, that was a cool death. Yeah, and their position is that, oh, you can totally represent death on stage, but not like it really is. You overdo it because that's what audiences believe in their words. Yeah. They believe it if you play it up, and they don't believe it if you just gurgle for a moment and, like, are resigned to oblivion. Yes. Yeah, and the, and the play, the, the player references an anecdote where they do a snuff play at some point. And the main complaint from the audience was that the death didn't look real. <laughs> right. And, yeah, it was an actual real death. It's the um, aluminum Christmas tree effect. And so, Tori, you were talking about the attempted murder of the player? Yes. So, <laughs> Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, upon discovering that... Uh, do they discover that they are to be murdered at that yeah, point? I think yeah. so. I think yeah. so. They've, they've kind of... There's really... It's come to a head. It's like there's been a lot of talk of death, and Guildenstern has spoken of how if it were merely being asleep in a box, it might not be so bad. Or uh, if it, you know, but death, you can't conceptualize it. And, and, and death, both of them have spoken, death can't really be this real thing. And so in this kind of anger and frustration um, around all these concepts they've been going through in their heads, one of them, and I can't remember which. Guildenstern. Guildenstern, yes. Yeah, not the funny one, the other one. Right, not the funny one, the stabby one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Rushes at the main tragedian, um, the guy who's kind of been taunting them throughout this whole play, kind of saying, well, you know, this is pornography, this is what we do, whereas Guildenstern's like, that's perverse. Mm-hmm. And there is a death of the player, and he's like... They're totally convinced that he has died, but it turns out to be a trick knife, a knife that folds, and he stands back up after a very dramatic moment in which we have believed he's he's been dead. It, it, it describes a very fun scene where, like, the, yeah, where he, the Guildenstern takes the player's dagger and like slowly pushes it into his neck, and like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern think this is real, and like the guy's like gurgling and dying, and all the actors, all the other actors are just standing around, like kind of bored, some or 
and half of them like watching them like very interestedly, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like very professionally, and like applaud at, at the end of it. Yeah. Afterwards, that that actor is like, oh, how do you feel different moment, didn't you? Or like, when I stood up for a moment, you thought I had like actually, you know, cheated death, huh? Yeah. This scene has always struck me particularly because I always felt that it could be a strong point of the play if that had been, in its own sense, a real death. Like, to highlight the artificiality of the death, it serves its own purpose. It, it does enforce the fact that the player is saying, oh, our deaths are real, as far as death can be real to anyone having not experienced death. It serves the point to highlight that even Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, in all their high and lofty understand or trying to say your deaths are fake are taken in by this but to me had it been a real death it could have highlighted the perspective that like death could be complete is completely unknown to any living person which is i think the bent of the play in a lot of places well i think what gildenstern was trying to do with like a real death is trying to say that, like what you're doing is playing what you're doing is acting death is real so this is real because I am a real person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's and, definitely trying to like do something real. And then at the end, when he realized that it was just a play, it kind of reinforces the fact that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are, well, dead and mm-hmm. also actors in a play, and they can't do anything to escape that. So I think that's the main point of all the deaths there being just as fake as all, all, that, that that they talk about. Yeah, the, the fakeness and reality can be interchanged in the sense of our understanding. That, Is that where you're going with that? That their, their experience specifically mm-hmm. is always going to be fake because they aren't real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, though I do believe that that can be extrapolated to the idea that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern representing like the condition of existing, the non-understanding of death being living people can be placed upon that idea of play-acting again. You know, like, if we are all actors in our own lives. Yeah, that's one of those things that keeps on looping back on itself. Yeah, (laughs) it really does. And I think that's kind of the brilliance of this fan fiction. Maybe just just getting us to ask ask that question about it is the point of it. (laughs) I mean, I think we're not going to do a full literary analysis and, like, super deep dive of this play. We're not? (laughs) No, I think we're probably going to wrap it up. But I, I'm having a little bit of trouble gathering my thoughts on something like this even. Like, what do we complain about in this or praise like we normally do? Well, I've already highlighted my complaint around the death towards the end because I do think there's, as much as I love this play, there has to be a bit of redundancy in the idea that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are false actors rather than real actors. Because I think they are supposed to be representative of real the reality of existing and not understanding what existence should be. So the fakeness at the end kind of gets me sometimes. It does, does juxtapose nicely with the realness of their actual death. I was going to say, it does end in real death, though, which is their real death. I mean, real unquotes, like, because it's a play, but right. But the, the deaths of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Uh, to me, I think they could have experienced real death outside of their own deaths. Hmm. Or maybe just like they can't cause a death that's not caused by the author in the play. Yeah. Right. It gets to me sometimes because I feel like it becomes too meta to the point where it's a play within a play within a play within a play. Whereas I don't think it needed to be emphasized that 
dramatically or that much. It's a fun scene. And I also kind of think they like to and maybe lean into repetitive motions, considering they start off with like nine coin toss in a row that end exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Right. I think having seen it on stage in an amateur production, it definitely asks a lot of the producing team to make it not drag or feel repetitive. I mean, to some extent, it's supposed to drag and feel repetitive, mm-hmm. but it needs to do that in an engaging way, right? Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of room there for failure in terms of putting this play on. Um, I guess I've only seen the one bad production of it and the movie, which is a very good production. But I think you'd have to take a pretty good, a really good director and a really good production team in order to pull this off okay. Right. <laughs> That's how it feels. Yeah. And so it's not the friendliest play as a play to be performed. Actually, before I saw the 90s film version of this, I, I always felt that I just liked reading it better. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't catch it all in performance. But I do think the 90s film version does quite well. I still think I get more out of reading it, though. You can, you can parse <laughs> the lines better. But There you go. Forget the theater. Who cares? Who wants to go see a play? <laughs> Movies are better, and so is fan fiction. That's the lesson we have here. Each one aren't invited to my next play. <laughs> I'm kidding. We, we, we need the seats. Come on. No, we're, we're going. No worries. No. <laughs> Too late. Already uninvited. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to praise on our way out? I like um, philosophical mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I would just enjoy a lot of this. There's a lot of fun, quippy quotes. Yeah, some parts of it are very funny. Yeah. And so, like, them talking themselves into reasoning completely unreasonable things, like ending with the phrase, stark, raving, sane. <laughs> I was charmed, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm safe to say. That's a great way to put it for me. Uh, to me, this is one of my favorite plays, so there are infinite things to praise. <laughs> um, Pick but one. The, well, but the, that's exactly. I'm catapulting off of Dom's sense of charm. <laughs> What's charming in this is that... <laughs> Stoppard's able to take two characters who have this feeling of having been Hamlet's childhood friends who are now betraying him in the source and give them a complexity and furthermore a very charming interpersonal relationship that makes them extremely likable. And all of their back and forth on the topic of death or the topic of existence or the topic of rhetoric or what is and isn't true or real, or their question play. It it can, I feel like it could drag, but it doesn't because there's so much love that appears between the characters, even though that I feel like that's very subtle and nuanced and intimated a lot only in tiny little character moments, like the first one we spoke of, like, let that be their character note. Mm-hmm. And the note is perfect, despite the description being a bit abstract. I feel like so much is communicated. It, it's really brilliant in many ways, how that's done. All right. We are coming down on the controversial opinion that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is a good play. <laughs> Stop the presses. I know. But before we end the episode, there's one more thing to talk about a little bit. This is our one-year anniversary episode. We have read a year's worth of fan fiction, which is obviously uh, 51 episodes. There's that one week. <laughs> yeah, there was that one week. <laughs> Back in, like, April, I guess. That was maybe? mostly Microsoft's fault, though. Yeah, it was. 
but, not our fault. But there We're was, blameless. But there was still an, uh, an episode there, so technically 52 episodes. That's true. Technically, mm-hmm. there have been 52 episodes. Darkness and light covered for us. Yeah. So that's like episode negative one or something. <laughs> so... I, when we started this project, I didn't know how far it was going to go. I'm very pleased that you two have been willing to just read whatever I throw at you for a whole year every week and then come and talk about it, regardless of whether you like it or hate it. (laughs) I understand that sometimes when you hated it, there was not so much reading that actually happened, but, you know, that's how life goes. Just as long as we sound like we know what we're talking about. (laughs) More or less. And so, any thoughts about where you'd like to be going from here as we enter our second year of retrospecting? I wouldn't mind revisiting some of the longer ones we abandoned earlier. Mm -hmm. We were talking about that earlier. I think there were several where we liked them and we just didn't have time to read too much of them. Yeah, I would love an excuse to read more Cattails. (laughs) Cattails specifically. Yes. Uh, We just changed the podcast to Cattails Retrospective. We could do that for a bit. (laughs) There's enough material there for a while. I'm sorry, I'm just really distracted by debating the idea that Tori and Dom are dead. (laughs) <laughs> Did you know there's a movie called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are undead? Of course there is. It's set at a production of Hamlet, but some of the actors are vampires. <laughs> That's my understanding. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Good also, title, though. I also have Tori and Dom are dead, who is a motto. <laughs> is a motto the player? Uh, yeah, times being what they are. Trajean? <laughs> times being what they are. 2019. Yep. Honestly, I do feel like the cold, harsh light of 2019 is pretty much exactly what the players are representing when they're like, well, we'll do whatever you want for money. We'll turn some tricks. Yeah. That's the cold, harsh light of 2019 for you. Yeah, well, our podcast is not quite at that point. Mm. So this was. But we'll get there, don't worry. <laughs> this was your impetus that this topic was your. your child so to speak Amada how do you feel that we've come this far did you feel like it's developing in the right direction or I think so I think back when we first conceived it I was planning on doing mostly 90s anime fan fiction Mm -hmm. which is why the first eight episodes are all anime fan fiction and then gradually it's moved out and like I've gotten more willing to talk about things to be like kind of know or kind of interested in and I think that's been interesting it's I don't know what the audience thinks about it, whether you might like some more consistency in topics or, like, more topics that are returned to regularly, or whether it's fine that we did Smurfs a couple weeks ago and then X-Files and now we're reading classic absurdist plays. And this one's a standout for us, to be fair. I suppose so. Yeah, and that uh, Smurfs fanfiction is one of the things that I've really enjoyed about doing this podcast is these little things that I expected to nicely say not like mm-hmm. but not only come to like but really come to appreciate it and appreciate the culture and the creativity that comes from these individuals yeah. working for themselves in order to make something interesting absolutely the smurfs one's such a good example of that yeah but. and it's certainly the thing i'm proudest of in our niche as a podcast is that we are trying to read good stories I only pick a story if, for some reason, I think it might be good. And for the most part, that means we read good stuff. And most people talking about fanfiction online do not come from exactly that perspective. They generally come from the opposite perspective, which is, let's find something ridiculous and probably not very good which and laugh about it. Which is kind of weird, considering how like the perception of geek culture has moved from 
being derisive to being like geek power, geeks run the world. Well, yeah, but there's levels of geek, you know, there was that old like levels of, I don't know, geek respect chart, I feel like. Right. And at the bottom was people writing furry self-insertion Star Trek fan fiction. Uh, Honestly. Like fanfic does not get usually a very good rap outside of its community. Honestly, I would like to say that when I first um, came off of this podcast, I felt like I would face a lot of criticism from other people in my life just for reading fan fiction. I was never that into fan fiction before, and I always felt like I had to justify, like, this is where I'm coming from. It's amazing to me because I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. I've seen authors do incredible things with, like, media they're interested in, working within universes they're interested in, and that's totally cool to me. It's just there's such a negative reputation of... It used to be like being a a geek about something was something the jocks would beat you up for, and now it's like, oh no! If only if you're a geek about this particular thing, but if you, you're not about this thing, you're like corny as hell, you know? Like, getting on Tumblr is like, well, all of the other like radical queer and trans people are like, well, you're in your uh, Steven universe, you're like a posy queer, like. There's so many stigmas going around in this world of just literally liking specific pieces of media. It's kind of blown my mind to see that I don't fully understand it, but I've come to this understanding and appreciation of what fan fiction is, which is pure praise for authors creating really cool works of fiction, and that's kind of dope. So Honestly, I think my perception has changed quite a bit because like it used to be that for me when someone mentioned something weir- weird or off kilter or like uh, not that palatable I'd, I'd respond with like uh, how'd you know about my fan fiction <laughs> <laughs> and I don't really use that joke at all or think about it in the same way anymore because fan fiction has gained a lot more legit le- uh, has gained a lot more legitimacy in my eyes yeah. yeah. Well, thanks again for joining me. I'm hoping that we'll continue on for a while. We'll see how far this fanfiction train goes. Yeah, and if uh, any of you have opinions, let us know. Let's, let's chat. Absolutely. Yeah, let's defeat the fanfiction stigma. Single-handedly. Cause Just us. For real, it's a thing that I've carried my whole life, and I'm so glad to have defeated it in myself. So, mm-hmm. power. <laughs> and I think a lot of this should come from fan fiction fans <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not but I'm not saying I would nah. continue reading fan fiction if we weren't doing this <laughs> that's how I feel but I feel like I can also maybe count myself in that community now that we've read so many fanfics so honestly though like I, I did put rest of cattails on like on my phone so I can read it mm-hmm. I, so I can have something to read if I don't know what to do admit it Dom you're a fanfic nerd <laughs> I might be <laughs> That's the other thing I've liked about this is getting other people in, you know, my life to join in on episodes because there's always something that people are interested in talking about. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean that mostly in terms of fandom, right, or quote-unquote fandom um, because but, these are not necessarily active fans but something they like. Personally, one of my favorite episodes is um, Joel's episode. Seafy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was dope. I, I didn't, I didn't know, know, know that about Joel. It was fun to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> You didn't know how much he thought about gay robot sex? No. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. I can't believe you just said that about your father. 
Well, I'm hoping to get my mom on air at some point. We'll see when we can arrange that. Let's see what she says about gay robot sex. I'm afraid not. It's going to be um, Sherlock Holmes. So All maybe. Right. <laughs> maybe without the robot part. <laughs> In any case, this was episode 51 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective. That is coming out approximately August 26th. Our first episode came out on August 24th in the cold, harsh light of 2018. So long ago. We're so naive. I know. We were. We were. I thought I didn't like fan fiction. I thought I knew what compression was. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that I would have trouble finding enough fanfics moving forward. I was trying to ration out the good ones. You did. (laughs) I thought you'd be good at finding Digimon fanfic. I did not think that. I think moving on, we might never read a good Digimon fanfic. <laughs> Just somehow, Amato keeps picking out the one Digimon fanfic out there without any Digimon in it. You two yeah. are so picky. <laughs> in any case, yes. Tell it to the Digimon, Amato. You can't, because they're not in the story, and they don't talk. There were Digimon in that story, but <laughs> let's move on. Our next episode, going into year two, is going to be Blood and Water, an angel fanfic. That is angel, you know, like Buffy angel. Oh, okay. Not angel, like, there's got to be another angel. Angel what? I don't know. Angel, the X-Man who has wings. Not that angel. That's not like its own TV show, though. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) You could could tell me that was on the CW, and I'd have to believe you. Yeah. You know, (laughs) that's not a bad CW show. See? (laughs) I actually kind of really liked that X-Men character in Evolution, so. But that's not what we're talking about. No, no, that's not the angel we're talking about. We're talking about Vampire Angel. We're talking about Boreanaz. You can find a link to that story at bit.ly slash RFR water. We're talking about more Wesley. More, probably more Wesley. Yes. And you can join us next week for that. As for this, this story was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I don't think it's in the public domain. I cannot legally link you to it. it uh, is... Check your local library. Yeah, it's in your local library. I have a copy here from my local library right now. And you live in the same place as me, right? Well, no, because, like, matter can't exist in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> fine, fine. And the intro song is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from that same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. We've got loyalty to Komiku. We've been using the same music for the whole year and are unlikely to change it because why would we? Right, that would require some sort of effort. (laughs) Right, which we try to minimize. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have comments, questions, or thoughts about the whole series in our one-year anniversary, please contact us. I mean, or this episode. You can have thoughts about this episode too either way please contact us on twitter at retrofanfic facebook at retrofanfic or uh what else have we got we got that reddit at fanfic retrospective or send us an email at retrofanfic retrospective at gmail.com or leave reviews wherever or make a flyer and post it on the wall of your local coffee shop i'm amato i'm dom i'm i'm dom i'm dom if you say so i must be tori We are just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other before the oblivion of death. Until next time, take care. Bye. The ears are senseless that should give us hearing to tell him his commandment is fulfilled, that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead.
It was hard. It was hard. It was hard not to say everything I was thinking all the time, and I probably said too many things anyway, no, but no, there were so many things I was thinking all of the time. I was half thinking maybe we should just let you go and sit back and head up the other <laughs> <laughs> My biggest regret is that we didn't get that Skittles conversation on air. 